Hello, and welcome to the No Breaking Podcast. This is your host, James McKeon, and I've made a road trip out today to see probably one of the hardest working men when it comes to cars in Southern California, Rod Emery. Hey, James. Thanks for having me on here with you today. No, no. I'm just very happy that you've been able to squeeze me into your very tight-packed schedule that you've got going on, judging by your Instagram. Well, yeah. I mean, as you look at my Instagram, I'm, I'm an early riser. I pretty much have been my whole life. I, uh, I'm up at about 3 in the morning and make my way to the shop by 4 and, and uh, just get myself right after it. You know, for me, it's really about maximizing my time with my family and the amount of work I can get done. And so... You know, if I can be working while they're sleeping and, uh, you know, and then kind of get my day started. I mean, judging by your Instagram, generally, I mean, you get here, as you said, you're up at three. So I think you probably have a secret, like, roll away bed that we're sitting in your office, like, right now that you come in and this is where you sleep. Uh, No time for much sleep. You know, we've got so many great projects in the shop and uh, uh, just really cool stuff happening right now. So how did you get this work ethic where you essentially do work, I'd say, even more than 24-7? You know, I think it just really started when I was a kid. You know, my mom and dad, uh, you know, they they really let me kind of create the life that I wanted, in a sense. I grew up in a little little town, uh, or actually a little canyon called Tribuco Canyon in southern Orange County. And, uh, you know, my mom and dad were hardworking. Uh, My dad had a Porsche parts business, and my mom uh, had the little grocery store kind of at the the mouth of the canyon. And and, uh, when I wasn't at school, I was in my little barn uh, working on motorcycles and and taking bicycles apart and and, you know my parents never put any restrictions on me from the standpoint of hey you've got to go to bed or you gotta uh, you know you can't get up that early and I think just when I was a kid it was just like man how much can I do how much can I accomplish and it just started from a young age you know I'd I'd go out in the shop for a couple hours before I'd go to school sure and uh, just kind of program myself uh, to, you know, I just loved working in the shop, working on motorcycles and, and bicycles. And then it, you know, that led to me racing and that led to me being on a drag race team and, you know, then building Porsches and, you know, it's just kind of how, how I'm programmed. Uh, look, I mean, we've got to really sort of touch on, I mean, you, it is really a sort of a family business that you've got going here and it's not just you, it's a regenerational sort of family business even though it's changed like sort of shape it's always been sort of in the same sphere is that correct well I think really what it is is we've just always been you know a, a motorsports or or car related family um, which dates all the way back to the 20s and 30s with my grandfather um, you know my grandfather Neil Emery had a shop in Burbank called Valley Custom Shop from 1948 to 1962 um, and you know really he he got his start about 20 years before that, um, when he was about 12 years old, uh, he had a little detailing business at Warner Brothers Studios, and uh, you know there were there were all these executives at Warner Brothers and and some of the different movie studios that literally parked on dirt, you know, in dirt parking lots. And, yep. You know they had you know a 36 Ford or they had uh, you know a 29 Roadster and and. They were parked in dirt parking lots, and my grandfather, 12 years old, grew up, grew up in Burbank, and and uh, he went over there and and got together with a few of those people and said, "Hey, you know, can I wash your car?" and and he created a, a detailing service that led to kind of a car concierge service. You know, he started by cleaning them, and then it led to these guys, um, these executives were like, "Oh, you know, can you fuel it up? You know, hey, it needs tires. Hey, it you know needs an oil change." 
hey, can you lower it? You know, and, and it was just when he was sure. a kid. He didn't have a, even have a driver's license, and he was uh, he was doing work for all these people. Yep. And then, you know, fast forward a bit. He uh, um, married my grandmother, and then immediately after that uh, was enlisted, you know, in the military. And, and uh, you know, here we are, World War II, and, and he – he was stationed at Alameda Military Base. Okay, up in the Bay Area. Up in the Bay Area. And, um, you know, thought that... And, and my father was born in, in uh, 1943. So right when he went into the war, you, you know, when he, when he went in, my father was born, who's the oldest of, of the four children. And, you know, at that point, you don't know if, if you know, if he's going to come back. Sure, certainly. Uh, you know, it was just kind of a crazy time for everybody. And... and um, so, you know, here he is enlisted, and and there was a, a general that went out and crashed his car one night and uh, came back and and uh, asked everybody, you know, if there was anybody that knew how to do body work, body and paint. Um, and and my grandfather, you know, said, hey, I've I've got some skills, I can do it, and uh, went out and banged the fenders out on this car and and metal finished it and did you know and next thing you know he was um head of the motor pool working on all the cars and never went to war instead he stayed right at alameda and um learned a lot of really valuable skills sure you know leading up to to that you know when he was you know in, in school you know he was working on cars but he wasn't doing a whole lot of like body and paint type stuff but yeah. while he was in the military that's what he did and so after the war was over he and his brother-in-law clayton jensen uh, said, hey, let's give this thing a go and let's start a, a shop. And uh, about, you know, 47, 48, right here in Burbank, they got a small building and, and went to work. And one of the first projects that they had is uh, Dean Batchelor, who was uh, editor of Road and & Track and one of the most famous uh, uh, automotive editors, um, was my grandfather's best friend. And he came with an idea that to build an envelope-bodied streamliner in 1948 and uh, Alex Exidius from SoCal Streamliner mm -hmm. or SoCal Speed Shop uh, built the chassis and running gear and my grandfather built this full aluminum body and, and by 1949 uh, they had broke the land speed record and were the fastest um, hot rod, first hot rod over 200 miles an hour and I think they ultimately went 218, 219 miles an hour in a flathead uh, aluminum body Which is no small feat. No, you know, so, so it's just kind of in my blood, you know, mm -hmm. uh, my grandfather had Valley, so that was kind of the beginning of Valley Custom Shop, and he was really one of the pioneers of channeling, sectioning cars, uh, he didn't chop everything like, you know, like Barris and Winfield and all those other guys, my yep. grandfather really kind of focused on kind of more European styling and, and taking meat out of the center of the car and raising wheel arches and, and uh, you know, kind of doing it the hard way, mm -hmm. you know, everybody was trying to make the cars look sleeker and, and sure. uh, he just did it the hard way and and uh, ran that business with uh, his brother-in-law Clayton until 1961 and then that's when my family kind of shifted and went into the uh, Porsche world uh, my my grandfather got an offer to run the body shop at Chick Iverson Volkswagen Porsche which was uh, kind of the main dealership in Orange County okay it was in Newport Beach right on Balboa Island and mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, he packed the family up, moved everybody down to Orange County and, uh, ran the body shop. And then, you know, my, did he have to take the ferry to work every day then? Uh, no, he didn't. Oh. He, he, you know, there was a, uh, you know, well, I, I say no, but, um, you know, I, I would imagine there was a bridge, 
I don't know. Uh, <laughs> maybe, the, maybe not. Who knows? Who knows? Who Someone knows? will probably I, correct us. Yeah, somebody, somebody will correct, correct us. I, I don't know when they put the little, uh, the little car ferry in there. But, but, um, but, anyways, yeah. So my grandfather moved the family down there. My, my, uh, my dad started working in in detailing cars, and then um, ultimately became parts manager of the mm-hmm. dealership. Yep. And my uncle Don uh, was my grandfather's apprentice and worked in the the body shop at at uh, the dealership. And then my uncle Kenny uh, ended up uh, working with my dad in the parts department. So you know, really, the whole family was uh, was working at Chick Iverson Volkswagen Porsche. And then and then fast forward a few years, my dad um, and Chick partnered together to create Porsche Parts Obsolete, which was um, all distributor obsolescence, new old stock Porsche parts. Sure. And that's, you know, when I kind of came in, I was born in, in 1974. Um, and, you know, my dad drove my mom to Hogue Hospital in a 66 911 with RSR flares and a ducktail. And yep. that's, that's, that was my uh, hospital transport. You know, so it was, you know, really the, the family has always been in the, you know, kind of custom car building Porsche world. And, and naturally, you know, growing up around that, um, you know, I was into... I was into engines and motors and sure, so you know, sitting next to two three wheelers here in front of us. Yeah, I started actually this little red 1970 US 90 uh, Honda was like the you know that was the first three wheelers that were made mm-hmm. and uh, I had one exactly like that when I was uh, six years old and then um, fast forward a few years and you see this 250R here that's actually Tim Pappas's uh, 250R I'm I'm just a caretaker of it at the moment but you know I went from the the little 90s to 250Rs to 350s and then once four wheelers came out I started racing four wheelers but it was just really in my blood you know to to want to go fast and build stuff and um, you know my grandfather taught me how to weld when I was a kid my uncle taught me how to do body and paint my dad taught me all about the parts and so you know, I naturally. really like that these safety lessons are obviously coming through as well. It's like the safety first philosophy here of like, there's a welder, just go use it. It's totally fine. Yeah, you know, yeah, there wasn't a whole lot of safety instilled <laughs> in me, but, um, you know, it was just... But it, it's, it, you've still got all your fingers and toes, hopefully. I, I do. So you know, there I've, you go. See, it worked. I, I think there was the, method to this madness. Definitely the thing that did the most damage to me growing up was three-wheelers, you know. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, it, it's that's uh, like the, like... But hey, you know, uh, I... I you know, I think I stopped breaking bones when uh, I stopped racing three wheelers and four wheelers. But you know, that for me was an amazing time of my life. I was I started racing when I was ten years old, mm-hmm. and um, uh, you know, did a hundred and fifty mile team race, and then kind of fast forward, and I ended up racing the Mickey Thompson Off Road Series, which was a um, a stadium series, and, yep. and uh, then raced the the nationals with uh, you know my my teammate was uh, eight time. ATV national champion, so I, you know, I had a pretty darn good mentor, Gary Denton, and uh, for anybody that is into motorcycles and and uh, knows anything about, you know, even today, Henson uh, uh, Racing, which is, um, uh, they're really the ones that, that kind of pioneered the the clutch baskets and modern day clutch systems that are in in uh, you know every motorcycle out there today. Yep. Wayne Henson that started the company, he was my my mechanic and. That whole concept was created because Gary Denton and I were were blowing clutches apart in uh, 1989 and 1990 while we were racing these things, and Wayne ended up spinning off an amazing business from uh, from that. And uh, yeah, so just you know, I, I had an opportunity to learn from such amazing people at a sure. young age. Um, you know, Wayne that I just mentioned, um, you know, taught me so much about um, you know suspension and chassis setup and engines and. Um, and then I had another guy that, uh, uh, guy named Tom Topping 
anybody that's been to the Long Beach High Performance Swap Meet, uh, Tom started that uh, swap meet that still goes today. And then he also had a company, Specialty Fasteners. But what his uh, you know passion was was drag racing, and so mm -hmm. he took a, a whole uh, uh, busload of us. You know, there were actually there were there were five of us that were under the age of 16, and and turned us into this you know crazy uh, hardworking crew of of uh, drag racing mechanics. And from 12 to 16 years old is it was our our age group, and we were nostalgia top. NDRA, Nostalgia Top Fuel Drag Racing Champions in 1988. Okay. And uh, then went on to, or 87, and then went on to race a, a contemporary uh, rear engine car in 1988 in NHRA. So, and so I'm assuming that obviously you're not just competing against children in those, or is that all children's classes? Or is oh, that... no. This was, this was top level Nostalgia so Top Fuel, and the entire crew on our car uh, were 12 to, to 16 years old. Yeah, so I imagine that you get the other people looking over and say, oh, kids and teenagers again we're up against oh. it was fun you know we um uh you know that whole kind of time of my life from when i was 12 to to 16 years old you know we would um we'd go to we'd go to school and as soon as we got home from school we'd immediately go over to tom topping's house and the workshop and the drag race shop was right there um at his home mm -hmm. and he would run he'd make us run drills we would we would blow the engine apart. Well, first we'd fire it up so it's good and hot. Okay. And this is a and this is a um, a front engine top fuel drag dragster, right? Yeah. So it ran an iron block, you know, Hemi. That uh, it was actually um, McEwen's 1967 car, um, and then so we had it in 1986. So you know, about 20 years later, it was considered a nostalgia top fuel car. Yep. But we. Um, what sort of time was it running down the quarter mile then? Uh, 606, 607, uh, about 220 miles an hour. So which not, is, not particularly slow as well at the no, same time. No, not on a front engine, a short wheelbase exactly, front engine yeah, car. Exactly, yeah. Um, and, you know, it was an iron block, and, and uh, so it was a pretty, it was pretty stout little uh, dragster, you know? Yep. And the reason that we, you know, I think that, that we were champions, I mean, sure, we were winning races because we were fast, but we were consistent, and we were, you know, we rarely broke, or if we did break... Uh, we were, you know, we we were so quick at fixing it um, that you know we never missed, a, you know, a semi qualifier, or, you know, whatever it was that we were doing, because Tom would we would come home from school, we'd show up at Tom's and there were five of us, and he'd, you know, we'd fire the thing up so it was good and hot, and then he would have us blow the thing completely apart. Yep. Um, you know, pistons out, check all the bearings. Uh, put it back together, change the fuel system, and fire it up. And so within 45 minutes, we were we were disassembled, reassembled, and firing it back up again. And he'd have us do that, you know, a couple times in a day. And you know, and we're just hammered, like 12, 13 year old kids, just you know, completely <laughs> beat at the end. Sure. But, but you know, by the time we got to the track, it was nothing. Yeah. You know, and uh, especially when your adrenaline's pumping and you got you know everybody else there, and and uh, so we we traveled all over the Western United States. Um, you know, we we raced it. At uh, Fremont, we raced it, or which was Balin's Raceway. We, you know, we'd go all the way up to Seattle. Um, we'd race at Pomona, uh, Bakersfield, all over the place. And here we were, you know, young kids traveling around uh, drag racing. So that was a that so, was a really cool time. In so my you life. were essentially the bad news bears of drag racing kind of thing. <laughs> you know, less Walter Matthau. That's, that's, that's and, exactly and what it was like. Boilermakers, hopefully. Yep, it was uh, it was pretty awesome. You know, we had a motorhome and. A, 
you know, an enclosed trailer and, uh, you know, just a, a band of wild kids, you know. So what happened then? So where was the transfer then going from your teenage years as, or the, the single digits riding bikes, teenagers going into drag racing, and then where did it lead from there? Yeah, so I was racing three-wheelers and four-wheelers simultaneously when I was okay. drag racing, right? So when so, you weren't breaking bones, you were still putting, be able to pull the engines apart. Yeah, I mean, there's, yeah, there's some pictures of me, you know, in my, because uh, we wore these, like, military jumpsuits when we were drag racing, but I had a cast on, and I'm still tearing engines apart, you know, but, but there came a point where, from when I was 12 years, because I started racing three-wheelers at 10, and then by 12, I was working on the dragster, and from 12 to 14, 15 years old, I was doing both. Mm -hmm. I was working on the dragster and I was, um, you know, racing three wheelers and, and four wheelers. And, and I, um, so yeah, let's see, by, by 14, I was, I transitioned from three wheelers to four wheelers. Cause that's right when kind of Honda changed that. But, um, but I had to make a choice of whether or not I wanted to, to keep drag racing mm -hmm. and whether I wanted to pursue the, the quad stuff because the you know at the time i was getting pretty good on on atvs and i was a, a local pro and i was racing you know had an opportunity to start racing the mickey thompson so i quit the drag race team and put all my efforts into racing four wheelers and when i wasn't doing that i was back at my dad's shop Still and that's when i started building my first my first 356. So when I quit drag racing, that's when I started building my first 356. And so what was the allure then of the 356? What was the, what was the reasoning? What was you know, I there? think for me, it was just a car that I was so familiar with because okay. I, I grew up around them. Sure. Um, you know, my dad always had one. The parts in, in his building were all, uh, you know, Porsche parts and mm -hmm. th primarily 356 stuff. And, and, and it always so, helps if you don't have to go too far to get the parts. Yeah, you know. And, and hopefully and, your father gave you a good rate. Well, my dad and I were building two cars together. Yep. And so um, his car was a, uh, a 1965 right-hand drive car, mm -hmm. and mine was a 1953 left-hand drive car. And um, so we were building these two cars together, and it was a father and son, you know, project. And um, it was just an amazing time for me because I got to – you know, decide what I wanted it to look like. And, you know, my dad gave me, obviously, you know, he steered me in a certain direction because that's, you know, that he, he knew the car so much better than me. Um, but for me, it was, um, it, it was, it was an opportunity to build a car. And so I kept mm -hmm. racing four wheelers, but ultimately I wanted to race cars. And so, um, I built it as a vintage race car. Okay. And by the time I was 16, um, I actually got my racing license, uh, at, at 16 years old at Willow Springs Raceway uh, driving a 356 and that's when like the vintage racing uh, Porsches kind of kicked in and and uh, I stopped racing off-road by 17 because um, I, I went from four-wheelers to a little single-seater buggy for a year in the Mickey Thompson off-road series yeah um, and then uh, um, by 17 18 I was just totally focused on racing a Porsche and um yeah just you know hustling to try and make money so I could go racing and um you know I was still working for um Tom Topping that had the drag race team he also had the swap meet and so once a month I would go and work at the swap meet okay um and but I wasn't drag racing anymore but I was working at the swap meet because it was a uh, it was a pretty lucrative deal for all of us as kids to, to, you know, go to a swap meet for two days and, you know, make five, 600 bucks was a, sure. was a great, uh, uh, you know, a great thing that, that Tom provided for us. I mean, it took our whole weekend, but he paid us really well. And, and it was just a really cool, really cool thing. 
And so uh, you go in there to, you've built the car with you. How long did it take to do the builds and your father and yourself when you're putting them together? You know, um, we got the car when I was 14. Mm -hmm. And I'm and going to assume there was probably a little price differential between when you got it when you were 14 and when you were yeah, I think it was like now. I think it was like 3000 bucks or something. Yeah. And it was, you know, it was it was pretty clapped out and, and uh, you know, beat up. But but it was a 53 coupe. You know, now you sure. pay 100 grand for that same car. Um, <laughs> Inflation. Inflation, a little <laughs> bit, you know. Porsche tax. Um, but it needed everything, and so mm -hmm. we... Um, we oh, well, it's good that you knew a person that had a parts supply business that oh, might be able to help out. Th absolutely. You know, I, I, uh, there, there's no way I could have done that without, uh, you know... Um, you know, without the support of my parents, you sure. know, and, uh, and my grandfather and my uncle and kind of everybody else. But it was really the beginning of, you know, my life's work, uh, you know, now, um, you know, it, so that really kind of set the stage for me. And, and, um, you know, I started racing a, a little 356, um, in, yeah, 1990. So it, it took about a year and a half to build that first car. Um, you know, my dad, uh, we, but we did two cars at the same time. We did mm -hmm. his right-hand drive and mine. And the first event we took him to was the, the, uh, 356, um, registry holiday in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. Okay. And, uh, we trailered both of them up there and, you know, that was, uh, that was a really cool thing. It was like summer of, of 1990 and, uh, I was 16 years old. Yeah. And then, so what led you then going from there in 1990 to where in 1996, wasn't it, when you opened up your own Yeah. Business? So, you know, I, after, so I was racing for a couple of years and then, um, then I thought I wanted to be an engineer. I mean, that was, uh, that was, you know, it was, it's one of those things, you know, as a teenager, you kind of try to figure out where your place is in life. And sure. you know, my family, my dad was, my, my grandfather was a car builder. My dad was in the parts business. It's like, you know, do I really want to be in the family business? Do I want to carve my own path? And, you know, so uh, I had done a lot of uh, like, you know, drafting in high school. And then, you know, 1990 was kind of the beginning of like CAD, you know, computer aided design. It was like all yep. of a sudden, you know, here's this new thing. And so I was going to go to a trade school in Arizona, um, it was it was like a mechanical engineering, you know, CAD program, like a two-year program, and then um, one thing led to another, and I ended up uh, deciding to move to Seattle, and and um, I enrolled in in uh, a community college, and then ultimately, uh, you know, with the plan of of going to the engineering school at uh, University of Washington, that was kind of where my path was headed. Sure. Um, so that was 1992, and. Then I was, uh, so I was still racing my little blue 356, and I was racing at Portland in 1992 and 93 at the um, uh, Portland Historic Races, and that's when all of a sudden I recognized that there was possibly an opportunity to create a business around this environment, um, because there was a gentleman named Cameron Healy that uh, had us, at the time, you know, it was a, you know, a, kind of a newer company, uh, kettle foods or kettle potato chips. Yep. That was which based out of delicious. Yeah. Which is the, the best ever. And, uh, he was based out of Salem, Oregon. And, um, Cameron was a, a Porsche guy, you know, he had a little 356 and he, mm -hmm. he loved these little cars and he was sponsoring the event, uh, at the Portland historics and, you know, giving away potato chips to everybody. Sure. And, and, uh, you know, his banners were all over and he used to park his trailers that kind of, you know, out, uh, just outside turn 12 so everybody could see the you know kettle potato chips on the side of a semi-trailer and, mm -hmm. and he came over and found my dad and I when I was racing my car and he's like oh you know 
that, that your car is amazing. I'd love to have an opportunity to, to race something like this. And, and so he contracted us to build a car for him, um, which was uh, a little uh, 54 convertible 356. It was actually a Cabriolet. And um, so we built a car for him and uh, then, you know, took him racing to a couple of events. And so kind of all that, you know, was going for a number of years. And then finally in 1996, I had just gotten married and uh, um, my wife and I decided, you know what, this, let's make this our business and uh, started Emory Motorsports. Actually, back then it was a, a DBA of Porsche Parts Obsolete because I didn't want to, I didn't want to, you know, go through all the hassle of, you know, sure. actually establishing a new company. And so I, I uh, partnered with my dad and, and created a kind of a little DBA of Parts Obsolete. And then, um, you know, a few years later, um, you know, got my own corporation and, you know, how all that stuff goes. But, so, you know, it's so, kind of the beginning I mean, of a business, you yeah, know, a like real business. And it's a big leap, to obviously, to go out on your own and do it. And it's always nice when you've got someone to help you there and do that. And then when you've got your feet, when you can start to get running, and then you can sort of make the leap into everything else, right? Yeah, exactly. And and, uh, lot, and all, honestly, there's a lot of paperwork. Oh, a ton of paperwork. And then know? for someone that likes to spend a lot of time bending metal and doing things like that paperwork, you're like, oh, I can get to that later. Exactly. So, exactly. So, I, you know, I started building cars and... and um, uh, we created, you know, Emory Motorsports, which was really, and the reason it's called Motorsports is because it was really a, a racing-driven business. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's uh, um, it, it was about building vintage race cars and loading them up in our semi trucks, and you know, because you know, from about 1996 until about 2008, 2009, our primary business was um, building vintage race cars, prepping cars loading them in our trucks, providing track support, hospitality. Um, you know, we did that for, uh, yeah, about 12 years. And we did probably anywhere from 10 to 15 races a year all across the United States. And, and uh, we'd have anywhere from four clients to sometimes 20 that we were, that we were building these with. cars for. And, um, you know, guys that were, you know, shoe designers at Nike to, you know, um, you know, marketing and, and innovation guys at Adidas and Microsoft guys and, you know, sure. just all these kind of Northwest guys that wanted to go racing mm -hmm. but didn't necessarily have the time to, to devote to, to having their own, you know, truck and trailer and, you know, all the necessities that they need. And, and we just provided a complete turnkey package for them. And sometimes it's nice to fly in and fly out, you know, just turn up and then get in and say, oh, problem. Oh, yours. Can you fix it? Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, now the, the term arrive and drive is a pretty common thing, but mm -hmm. when we started doing it in, you know, 95, 96, you know, it was, it was fairly new. There weren't a whole lot of companies that were providing a full turnkey arrive and drive program. And if they were, I assume there would also be like big OEMs that would be doing that. Yeah, there were a couple of really great companies up in, in the Seattle area okay. that, that um, there was... Uh, a, a guy named Louie um, that had a, a company, actually still has it, very successful shop, J&L Restorations. And, mm -hmm. and um, you know, I got to spend some time with Louie because he, uh, for a while, my 356, when I moved to Seattle, I needed a place to prep it. And, and um, he had my car for a little while there. Um, so I got to see kind of how they were doing their business. Sure. You know, they had a pretty wide range of clients, everything from, you know, Corvettes to Mustangs to, you know, uh, Brabham's to, you know, 917s. And then there was another company, VRM, um, which is um, still around. A great, you know, company that's uh, owned by one of the Macaw brothers. And then um, there was also uh, Butch Dennison, 
And you know, so there was these three pretty good sized companies that were that had this arrive and drive type business in Seattle that I, I kind of see how they were doing their, their program. Yep. What was different about mine is that it was just Porsche. And, um, so when you went to the paddock, you know, at the Seattle historics or the Portland historics, you know, or even, uh, you know, CSRG or Monterey, wherever we were at, sure. it was a line of 10 to 15 356s and 911s, mm-hmm. uh, which was a pretty cool sight to see. Yeah, when they all come together. And for me, it was a great business because I had kind of duplication. You know, the cars were very similar. Um, so that business was really a great business to be in. Um, I slowed that down and kind of got out of the track support um, and race prep business in 2008. You know, the economy kind of dipped a little bit. I could see that there weren't as many people that were going to want to go racing sure. for various yeah. reasons, you know, Global some economic financial crisis meltdown things that might yeah, impact just a little, things. you know, one of the, you know, stuff you have in those fun weekends little, away. Oh yeah. A little speed bump. But, yeah. um, and so that's when, um, I really kind of put all the effort into, um, you know, creating a, a Porsche that or a three fifty six that could just be driven and driven hard. And, you know, dating back all the way into the, you know, early nineties, you know, I was taking the 356 and, and giving it more power and better mm-hmm. suspension, better handling, better drivability. And, and by, you know, kind of the late nineties, I had already built my first Emory special, which was, you know, really a 356 with, you know, three times the power and better brakes and different styling. And, and so there were a lot of people that were like, Oh Rod, you know, build me something like that. But when we were doing the track support, that was you know, really my focus. So I was only building, yeah. you know, maybe one special and a couple of outlaws a year in conjunction with the, the, uh, vintage racing stuff. But then in 2008, 2009, when I kind of pedaled back on, on doing as much of the track support stuff, that's when I said, you know what, now it's time to just kind of go full throttle and building these little Emory outlaws, Emory specials. And, um, that's where we're at today. You and know? so what was the, in your mind when you're thinking back in 2008, what was the, the switch that said, you know, what, we'll make, we'll go from the race into the cars. Was it because you knew that there was a market there or was it the idea of like, you thought if you could create a good enough product, you'd be able to create the market for it, which is the, the way that you were sort of looking at it. Yeah. I think, you know, there's just a lot of things that kind of contributed to it. I was, we had been providing track support and, and traveling all over, you know, my kids were, yeah. um, you know, at the time, you know, like six and 10 years old and we'd been dragging them all over the country for, you know, a couple all, of years their, their entire life. Yeah. And we were ready to, Amy and I were ready to just kind of plant our feet and, and, uh, you know, and, and I had a couple of customers, uh, one guy that owned the Porsche dealership up in Bend. Um, you know, he, he had a career GT. He, well, he had just ordered a career GT, but he, he had a speedster and a roadster and all these amazing cars. Uh, but he wanted something special sure. and he wanted, he wanted me to build him a car that was kind of like the perfect, you know, convertible Porsche for him. Yep. And, um, and when I built that car for him and then also a, a black special for uh, a guy, Dennis Kranz, you know, I realized that these guys, you know, that there was, there was definitely, you know, guys that wanted a car, kind of a bespoke car, kind of mm-hmm. something built, you know, just for them, the way that, that it just fits like a glove. And, um, and so when I built the, you know, the, the black special for Dennis and then, um, this Emory special for, uh, Tom Anderson that owned the dealership in Bend, um, that's when the kind of light went off that, you know, it was like, wow, you know, I can just build amazing cars for people and they're going to love them, yep. uh, you know, and, and, it's uh, be a car for life, a car for life. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Dennis, 
you know, he's, um, you know, he's getting up there at age, but still at the events. I just saw him at Amelia Island. He had his car there. You know, I built that car for him in 2007. Uh, he loves it. He's got, you know, he's got 935s. He's got the Fittipaldi RSR. He's got this little black special. It's an special. Awful, dumb, awful trouble to have when you've got those things. Yeah. yeah, but, you know, like that little black special on the wall right yep. there. You know, I built that car for him, and, and uh, you know, he still, he lives in, in Portland part of the time and in uh, in Florida part of the time, and, and that car travels with him wherever he's at. And, and so, to me, that's, you know, that's really cool. And then Tom... Um, you know, he enjoyed the heck out of his car. Unfortunately, he passed away a couple of years ago. And, um, you know, and then uh, about a year later, um, uh, I found a new home for the car. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the guy that has it now loves it as much as Tom did, you know. So, so yeah, they, it, it's about building a car that's, that, you know, I call them an Emory special, but they are. They're, they're pretty special, you know. So much thought and work goes into them. And, and um, you know, I try to build them so that, so that they're a car that that they never want to get rid of. Sure. So how many Emory Specials kind of things have you built in total up to now? Um, about 10. And then, um, you know, Emory Outlaw cars, um, probably about 65 or 70. Um, and then the rest, I've, I've, I think we've built about 160 cars in, in total. total. Sure. And uh, the rest are... Which is a good amount. Yeah. It's especially a, for the, the amount of time and effort and workmanship that goes into them. Yeah, because everything goes to bare metal and we do all this, you know, rust repair. And and uh, so, you know, we've built, you know, a handful of, a uh, couple handfuls of Emory Specials and then, you know, we've done a, a bunch of uh, Emory Outlaws, which, you know, an Emory Special is really kind of a bespoke hand-built car where we take a 356 and we restyle it uh, and then give it three times the power, better brakes, better handling, um, you know, a proper transmission. And then an Emory Outlaw is more of a GT-inspired car that, um, again, about the same running gear uh, as a special, but it doesn't have, like, heavy body modifications. Okay. You know, it's lowered and maybe bumpers or no bumpers, and it's got hood straps and fog lights, but but it's still a traditional-looking 356. Yep. Uh, and then uh, restorations, you know, as far as cars that are restored – you know, exact back to an exact point in time. You know, I've done uh, about ten cars like that. You know, nine oh sixes, nine oh four, the three fifty six SL, which was Porsche's first race car and the the car that won Le Mans nineteen fifty one. You know, cars like that that we do. Um, I don't want to just restore a stock so C coupe. Sure. You know, back to stock because there's plenty of shops that do an amazing job. In fact, a better job than I would because I think they put more heart and passion into it. Mm-hmm. I, I think part of it is for me, you know, in order for me to give a car all that I've got, I have to, there has to be a story. Sure. You know, if, if I'm going to do it back to perfect original stock, um, it needs to be like, you know, a car that, you know, has some meaning or a story, not just, you know, an average C coupe that's restored, you know, back yeah. to perfect. Um, but there's so many shops that, that, that do an amazing job. I mean, you know, you look at like the, the craftsmen out there and the shops that are doing, you know, what I consider the top work out there, you know, road scholars, um, you know, the Ingram family, uh, exceptional work. Um, you know, Paul Russell up in, uh, in Massachusetts, mm-hmm. uh, John Wilhoit right here in, in, uh, Southern California, um, there's a great shop in, in Arizona now, Deluxe Customs, Matt and his crew uh, do just, you know, an amazing job at their restoration. So there's lots of shops that do that stock, traditional, um, you know, full Concours or close to Concours restorations. Sure. 
Um, so for me, it's, you know, it's got to be a car uh, like the 906. You know, that was a, a Northwest car uh, owned by a guy, Don Wester, that, that you know, raced that car um, through the, you know, 65, 66, or 66, 67, 68. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I restored that for a, a gentleman uh, in Northern California that, and, and took it exactly back to how it was. little color change, but all the, you know, how it was raced back in that sure. time. Um, so those are fun, like yeah. restorations. Um, and then we do some 911s. You know, I've done um, uh, a handful of 911s and 912s. Um, so, you know, all in, about 160 cars, uh, you know, in my, in my 30 years. Actually, this... This year, um, I just realized this a couple of weeks ago, but this year is 30 years of me actually building Porsches. Okay. Yeah. So that's 30 of the 70 then. You've been building Porsches. 30 of the 70. Yeah. yeah. Of Porsche's 70th. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, so out of, I guess, yeah, this year is my 30th year because I started working on my car in, in 1988. I hope they send you a cake. Um, hey, you know what? Porsche sends me, gives me lots of support. I, uh, uh, they don't have to send me anything. Just the, the, the fact that they, uh, they created this amazing platform for me to, to play in every day is all that I need. So then, so that gets down to it. So obviously you've got the, you've got the heart and soul aspect of it, but if you were to try and describe that to someone and take your family connection out of it, what is the appeal of the 356 then that you think that you could tell to someone that says? Yeah, I mean, you know, the 356 is, is, uh, you know, from a visual standpoint is, is like no other car out there. You know, I mean, obviously the 911 has, you know, picked up and carried a lot of the, the similar silhouette traits of a 356. Sure. Yep. But, you know, if you really just look at that, you know, that shape, um, when it was introduced, um, you know, it, it pulls a little bit of inspiration, obviously from, from the Volkswagen, but, uh, but it's just, it's unique and, you know, it's construction is unique, rear engine, unibody chassis, uh, very lightweight, you know, safe. I mean, I've crashed hard in 356s and, um, you know, just the, you know, the way that they're designed, the way that the, uh, um, um, the chassis are built, um, you know, they're, they're, there's just so much about them. And, and when I realized the, the driving potential in one, when I was a kid and, and having so much fun on the racetrack with one, um, you know, I, I knew that it was a, a car that I could, you know, uh, turn into something that people would want to drive all the time sure. and adventure in, you know, it's not just about a little, uh, you know, taking to cars and coffee type of car, you know, you can, you know, you've seen me tow trailers with no, them that's and the next roof thing. racks yeah. and, you know, um, and go off and road with them, whatever. Them everywhere. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, you know, they handle great, whether it's in the snow or in the dirt, uh, they've got great traction, you know, sure. They're They got some characteristics about them that you got to kind of be on your toes when you're, when you're, you know, driving them hard, but, um, or on the public roads, we drive them absolutely to the speed limit. Yeah. I'm talking about, you know, on, on racetracks or, you know, off the trailer on the back and then you go, yeah. Uh, Yeah. But no, they're, they're just, they're just fascinating. And, and I think one of the things that I love also, and and the reason that I've built, you know, a, a, a business and I think a successful business around them is because there's very few people out there that really, um, um, understand them, um, or, or, or willing to put in the work that it takes to get them back to shape. You know, I mean, these cars, when we get them today, um, you know, some of them just, most people wouldn't even touch them. Yeah. Because obviously there's a finite number of these cars and that number is probably getting smaller and smaller every year after either they disappear 
or they get uh, maybe restored, for example. Yeah, I mean, there were 76,000 total built yeah. uh, all in from 1948 to 1965. And, uh, uh, you know, I would imagine, I mean, I, I don't know the exact statistic. I'm, I don't think anybody does, but I would imagine that two-thirds of those still exist. Sure. Um, you know, as the cars were produced, about half of them came to the U.S., and about half of the U.S. cars came to California. So, you know, the... the, the the bonus for us being in California is that there's a pretty high concentration of them here. Yeah. Um, and, and they don't get that rusty here, I'd imagine, with the weather? They don't. You know, they're um, not as bad as they do, you know, as cars that were on the East Coast yeah. or, you know, some Obviously, of the European yeah. or cars. Or maybe the Midwest, for example. But, um, you know, I'm finding them all over the place. You know, um, obviously the average person has a harder time finding cars than, than we do just because I've been doing this for so long that my reach is is pretty broad yeah and i'm assuming that if anyone goes up for sale for example you might hear about it sooner than someone else for example so yeah i mean one way or another i'm going to find out about it you yeah. know i've got alerts <laughs> that start popping up on my phone i've got people that tell me about them um and and also people know that if they've uh if they find one they'll call me and i'm going to give them a straight answer of what it's worth i'm not trying yeah. to i'm not trying to steal them because um you know th those days of you know, finding a, a little Porsche in a little old lady's garage for a thousand bucks, you know, it's probably uh, those are gone, but also just ethically, it's just not, no, you, know. you want to give that little lady at least 1200, yeah, at least exactly. 1200. But you know, I get a lot of calls, um, from people that are trying to, you know, figure out what the car's worth. And, and, you know, I just tell them straight up, look, this is, this is kind of the range and value, you know, these, you know, a speedster, for example, you know, I mean, uh, you know, the, the cheapest speedster you're going to find that's a complete basket case that needs to be completely restored is going to be a minimum of 150, maybe 200,000 these days. Yeah. Um, you know, and a good running driving speedster is 250 plus. Sure. You know, one that's fully restored is four to six, yep. you know. And and so if somebody has a speedster and they call me, I tell them that straight up and and then tell them what their options are, whether it's you know, sell it on bring a trailer in an mm -hmm. auction format, you know, the Samba, uh, or, you know, eBay or Craigslist or, yep. you know, the registry site. And, and a lot of times, you know, a lot of the cars that I end up buying, um, you know, I've told them how much they're worth and I told them the places they can sell them. And, um, I end up still being able to make an offer on it and, sure. uh, and buy it for a fair market value price. I'm, I'm not trying to steal them. I, you know, I would prefer to, that everybody, you know, comes out ahead that the, the person that's had it for 35 years in their garage is going to get a fair value for it. And, uh, then the client that I pair the car up with, um, you know, can then, uh, you know, maybe still have a little equity in it so that it's not, you know, too far gone, but it doesn't really matter because we're going to blow the thing apart and media blast it and restore it, you know, a hundred percent anyways. Yeah. So speaking of that, so if we go back to your shop here that we've got here in, in North Hollywood, how many people have you got working here then? Uh, there's there's a total of 13 of us. So um, we've got, um, and then my wife that, that comes in and runs the office. So, you know, technically, I guess 14. Um, and Roscoe makes it. And, and Roscoe is the boss. So, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's CEO, so he doesn't really yeah. count. But um, Roscoe is my little eight-year-old bulldog that is just uh, the love of our family's life. You and know? is incredibly adorable, let's put it that way. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I've got a great group of craftsmen and, uh, and women uh, that, you know, that work in the shop here, um, you know, people that, you know, range in age from, you know, early twenties to, uh, late fifties. Um, you know, most of them, 
you know, I've had some experience doing, you know, working in some capacity, but not really, you know, working on these little thrifty sixes and, mm -hmm. and, uh, um, which isn't, it's not really when I'm looking for an employee, it's not necessarily about, uh, you know, their experience in building these cars or, you know, how good of a fabricator they are. You know, there's kind of three criteria that I, I need. You know, the first one is they've got to be passionate about these cars. Sure. Um, you know, that's, that's an important piece to me, uh, because, you know, you can't teach people passion and, uh, and desire. And um, you've certainly got passion, I would say, for Porsche. Yeah. Vietnam. Well, yeah. So if you're going to be around me, you better, yeah. uh, you better have a little. Um, and then the second one is, is, um, uh, you know, work ethic. They've got to be. They've got to be willing to come in, you know, early and uh, and go right to work. And and really, one of the ways that I kind of weed out some of the people that that you know maybe your partiers is that our shop starts at six a.m. Sure. And if you can't make it here at six a.m., then this isn't a place for you. So. And you you've know, already obviously been here at six a.m. for like four or five hours, basically yeah. already. <laughs> well, I get here at four uh, myself, and then I've got uh, Brandon. He gets here at four and gets everything kind of unlocked and, and the shop dialed in. Uh, but that gives me a little time to get everything kind of rocking before the, the, the crew st shows up. Uh, but yeah, so they've got to, they've got to be passionate about Porsches. They've got to be, they got to have a, a, you know, good work ethic and, um, you know, and, and the, the kind of number, you know, number three is they've got to live within a, you know, 10 to, you know, 15 mile radius of, mm -hmm. of North Hollywood, because, you know, there's nothing worse than burning yourself out and uh you know, traffic in los angeles funnily enough some people get stuck in it for quite a lot of time yeah and, and it's only a matter of time before they get burned out and, yeah and uh you know so um with us working early in the morning so you know our times from six until about three usually they can get here before traffic and they can scoot out of here you just know before just before traffic. traffic so that works out good plus it promotes you know family time you know I, you know joe he's got a he's got a you know couple kids at home and an amazing wife and I want him to be there with them you know and also have the ability to you know pick the kids up from school if he sure. needs to and and so by shifting our schedule early it, there's a lot of advantages you know and so how does it feel because obviously you said you've got you've got a large age range in your employees but it must be you coming on now as would be sort of a mentorship in some of those younger people that come through whereas you've had mentors in your past what's it like sort of transferring your knowledge how does that feel and see someone if you take them and see them improve over time kind of thing yeah it's one of my favorite things you know that we do is is we bring somebody in that really doesn't have the skill or or uh, understanding of these cars and and everybody um, you know that they're working with is is sharing their knowledge and and mentoring them and coaching them and you know at the end of the day um, you know a year two three years in you know they become you know kind of masters in in their field or their area and um, you know, obviously I wouldn't be where I'm at today or at least nowhere near where I'm at today if it wasn't for, you know, my dad and grandfather, Tom Topping, you know, Marla LaFontaine and, you know, Wayne Henson and Gary Denton and these mm -hmm. people that, that really took an interest in me and, um, and shared, you know, skills and shared business techniques and, and all those things with me. Um, and so I, I feel that it is kind of a, you know, a duty and an obligation for me to, you know, pay that forward and to share as much of that knowledge and, and experience as I can with, you know, the people that work for me, because, um, you know, unfortunately somebody that comes into this field, the reason they come into it is because they're passionate about cars and they don't have a trust fund to rely on, you yep. know? 
So um, the only way they're gonna the only way that they're gonna be successful in life is hard work and learning a skill. And um, you know, I think that you know, I, I definitely instill you know kind of work ethic, but I really want to help them you know develop skills that that carry through so that they can you know provide a living because man it's you know california is not a cheap place to live no no it's not at all sometimes it'd be kind of expensive and then when you've got lots of toys like you do as we're surrounded by them all it gets more expensive <laughs> yeah you know it's uh, kind of a I, i'm i'm a hoarder of of things that i love and um uh but you know it it, it all kind of relates to what i'm doing sure speaking of what you love then i mean obviously we're doing this in july this this podcast and then next month we've got car week and then the month after that we've got rent sport have you got anything planned in regards to that moving forward? You um, can talk about it, I should say, at least. Yeah, so, you know, the next three months is kind of crazy because, you know, there are so many activities, so many mm-hmm. things going on. With with Car Week, um, we're going to be at the Works Reunion, which is the Porsche Club of America, um, you know, show, which is in Monterey on Friday, uh, kind of in the middle of the week yep. of Car Week. Um, my father is really looking forward to that one. It's going to be good. You know, um, outlaws are featured this year, uh, in Monterey, just like they were at Amelia Island, Mm -hmm. um, this, this spring. And so, um, you know, we'll have a handful of our cars up there and, and, uh, so that's going to be great. And then, um, the 356 SL will be part of the Peterson display, um, at Pebble beach. So it's not going to be, we're not entering it in Pebble beach again. And we did that in 2016, but it's going to be on display, uh, at Pebble beach, um, and possibly something else on Saturday up there. So that'll be cool. And then, you know, fast forward, uh, three, four weeks later to Rensport, you know, Rensport reunion is, is an event that, um, for those that don't know, uh, that Porsche puts on in conjunction with, uh, well, this will be, uh, the third one at Laguna Seca, mm-hmm. um, or I guess we should call it WeatherTech um, raceway. Yes, it is now. Yep. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a it's the most amazing Porsche race and event. You know, uh, every three years or approximately every three years, um, we were there in 2015 with the 356 SL on display and in, in partial restoration. This year, we're going to be there. We got a lot going on for Rensport. Um, I, I'm going to be racing two cars. We'll have the SL there on display. We'll have a, a new car that I'm finishing. Uh, for Momo, which is um, for the owner of Momo, Enrique, uh, that's going to be pretty wild. Um, a twin turbocharged 356. That's going to be a fun one. Um, so that totally, almost underpowered, basically, that level. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Uh, like, you know, and that's the car that I'm personally working on nonstop, 24-7 right now. Um, and, you know, so we've got that car. Um, I'm going to be racing a, a 60, 1964 Elva Porsche that has a 904 four cam Porsche engine in it and also a 935 that is currently being restored by Gunner Racing. Uh, so I'll have those two cars that I'll be racing that weekend. Uh, so lots going on, you know. And uh, I know that they do the Rensport reunion down in Australia. Have you got any plans to go to that one as well? You know, it just sort of does, it makes it difficult yeah, with the schedule of working 24-7, 366, at least minimum in the year. Yeah, you know, I, I was invited by uh, Ron Goodman to, to go down there and um, and take part in it um i don't know yet if i'm going to be able to make that happen this spring mm-hmm. um there's just yeah just so many commitments here in the u.s it's so popular oh it's well <laughs> um it, just so much going on you know yeah. and, and and my focus is really 
on, you know, building cars in the shop. And, you know, with Rensport, we have to do it and it's going to be fun and it's exciting, but it's also one of those things where it's like, I don't want to go anywhere because I, I want to be right here in the shop building cars. You yeah. Know? And then obviously you don't just like the old stuff that Porsche does. You also like some of their new stuff. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, obviously I love Porsche in general. Yeah. Um, and, um, you've dedicated you know, 30 years of your life to it. So yeah, you know, my primary business is the, the older stuff, the vintage cars, but you know, from 2003 to 2006, I ran a GT3 cup car. Um, in 2005, I, I raced the, the, um, Grand Am Rolex series and, mm-hmm. and did Daytona and, you know, a bunch of cool events in a, in a cup car. Um, and you know, that really kind of, you know, once you taste that blood, it's hard to get it out of, get it, you know, get it out of your mouth. And, and, uh, so although I don't race a, a newer Porsche anymore, um, there's, you know, uh, I do have a, a newer, you know, GT3 RS. Do you just that, take right to the speed limit? And, the, and that's yeah. It. Um, when I'm, uh, you know, on, on a racetrack, on a, on a race, okay, yeah, on, on a racetrack, track, I, I, uh, I can push it, but uh, only, only, you know, just right to the speed limit to, on the public roads, on, to on get the public there. roads. That's right. Um, but no, so I've got, you know, I've got that car and we, we have a handful of newer Porsches. Um, uh, you know, my kind of daily driver, uh, I have a 2002 996 twin turbo that mm-hmm. I drive every day, uh, or, you know, I can't say every day because I, I do jump in the RS a couple days a week and sure. drive it back and forth. Um, but that's the one that you put the most miles on, say it, it is, it is. Um, and that thing is best bang for your buck, you know, 2001, two, three, four, nine, nine, six twin turbos are just, you know, for a $40,000 car. Yes. Uh, you Very know, for, yeah, five hundred horsepower, all-wheel drive, amazing cars. Get some money can at that price. I think is what's going to be. Yeah, you know, I, I they're 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 definitely uh, undervalued in my you know from my standpoint because, you know, you can just beat on them and they just keep keep giving it. You know, so that car and then my wife has a you know Macan GTS and my son has a uh, a Cayman S that that he bought a few years ago. Um, my daughter, she's just driving. She's got a little GTI, so no Porsche yet for her, but she'll, uh, um, you know, she, she's she'll a hard probably get there girl. eventually. Yep, she'll get there eventually. Um, so yeah, you know, I love the newer cars. Um, you know, I um, Porsche just you know keeps pushing the envelope and and creating you know amazing stuff. I mean, I'm even excited about this new. I don't know about the name. I'm I'm trying to get used to it, but this yeah, yeah it's a difficult the, one. Yeah. But uh, the Mission E car is is yeah. uh, you know it's it's I know the future is is electric and hydrogen and all this alternative fuels i'm never going to give up on on uh, fossil fuels but uh, i'm definitely going to embrace the new stuff and and enjoy it because why not you know when you can take advantage of of technology it's you know so uh, i i think eventually we'll have one of those in in the emory stable yeah now obviously you've um done some cars for other people who might be racing against were coming up, say, at Pebble in the Rensport reunion that, you, that you've probably done and worked or maybe they've been involved in the past. When you get in that racetrack and the, the flags are being waved, does the red mist descend and they're not friends anymore? Is that how it works? Well, yeah, but vintage racing is a little bit different than, uh, than well, contemporary racing because sure. it, is, it is still... You know, everybody is um, is pretty friendly. To Unless each you're other. in the Group C cars, and then it's well, then it's, yeah. Then it's all then it's, then it's all yeah, yeah. then it's all uh, it's all egos. No, <laughs> um, but but yeah, you know, I mean, definitely when when you know, anytime you put a, a helmet on and, and get behind the wheel of a race car, you get serious and and uh, you know, total focus and and um, you know, obviously 
you know, you want to be safe and you want to push the limits, but you know, in vintage racing, because of the value of the cars, uh, yeah. you, you do have to pedal back a little bit. Yeah, and especially that, if you're paying to repair them yourself. You've got yeah. someone else that can do it. That's yeah. fine. So, so, you know, there isn't quite as much red mist as there there would be, uh, you know, if I was on racing the, a, a career cup. Or you know, if you're on your quad again, say, for example. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. track. Yeah, there's... The I, 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 I'm trying to talk my wife into letting me do the Elsinore Grand Prix. There's, you know, there's vintage racing on three-wheelers, but she's she's not too keen on the idea of me uh, going out. Is it out because you've seen the photos of you in the cast and everything? Yeah, she knows that I survived, uh, you know, 30 years ago, but she's... She's afraid that I'm not quite built like I was. You know, uh, quite as bendy as we were back then? Exactly, exactly. So so what, have you got any other projects that you're working on or is it just the one at this moment in time as the focus is the Momo car? Um, Well, yeah, I mean, there's really great projects in the shop and, and, uh, um, you know, obviously I oversee all the projects in the shop. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm dead center, you know, my station is dead center in the shop and I'm, I'm overseeing everything. Um, so, you know, I'm making all the decisions and, and everybody has their car that they're working on. We've got a great car that we're building right now for, uh, for John Oates, mm-hmm. uh, from the band Hall and Oates, yep. um, that, uh, the car should be done for, um, works reunion. And then, uh, uh we'll have a few things to kind of do on it before Rensport. We're, we're doing a hard top and a soft top for it. So it won't be a hundred percent done for works. It'll probably still have its, it'll have the hard top, but soft top will come later. Okay. Um, but that's a really cool little car that we're building for him. Um, we have, uh, um, you know, uh, a handful of, of Emory outlaws that we're building for people, you know, around the U S and, and then we have a nine eleven that we're, that we're doing that'll be done for Rensport. That is um, a narrow body, uh, short wheelbase 911. That car's at paint right now, and um, uh, it's center lock hubs and a bunch of cool like yeah. uh, cool parts on it that that kind of make it a, a you know kind of a prototype uh, um, you know early 911. Sure. So cool stuff there. Um, but yes, yeah, so we've got some great great cars that we're building right now. And then if anyone wants to find on the internets, where would they look to track you down mostly? Instagram. Instagram is a place to kind of find me and, and uh, interact with me and see what's happening because, I mean, I, I do post some stuff on Facebook. Um, you know, our website's kind of out of date. Um, but, yeah, really, the, the place to find me is uh, on Instagram, and it's just Rod Emery, R-O-D-E-M-O-R-Y. Um, and, yeah, if you're on there, you, you'll you see. You're working 24-7, eating energy bars, wearing your vans, listening to rock music. and Drinking pounding, Pellegrino. And, yeah, and pounding out in Porsches. That's right. That's pretty much, that's, uh, you know. Or buying new model cars. That's right. That, that's what you see. What you see is what you get. Yeah. Uh, speaking of model cars, I mean, I, you know, yesterday went to the, uh, yesterday morning before church went to, uh, uh, the uh, swap meet at the Rose Bowl just so I could see what was there and what did I end up buying? I bought uh, four hot, kind of hot, uh, there were four Porsche Hot Wheels and uh, and uh, an old uh, mobile uh, map from 1959 that was pretty cool. But, uh, you know, I, I, yeah, I, I collect weird little stuff. Look, uh, it's all good. All Porsche related stuff. As long stuff. as you've got the room for it, that's I think right. it's always important. As that's long as when you're stuck getting not enough room <laughs> and you have to like make piles of things, that's when I think you like, might have pushed over the edge at that point. Yeah, but yeah, on my Instagram, you can kind of keep tabs on, on what it is that I'm doing. It's, uh, um, it's my personal account. Uh, we have one kind of for Emory Motorsports, but uh, I don't post anything on there because I think that, that for me, it's just more about letting you guys see kind of the real me and, and uh, what you see is what you get. Yeah, I'm into Porsche design watches and, and um, you know, Honda three-wheelers and four-wheelers and, and uh, you know, 
I play with tools all day long, pounding yeah. on cars. And, and mostly all night as well, not just all day. That's right. That's, that's right. right. Well, Rod, no, I really, really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule. And I also appreciate the fact that you're not doing like four things at once while we've had this interview. I feel very blessed that you've been able to sit down for the last hour. Well, I've been sitting on my hands the whole time. I you know. know but, I know. It's been very good. But I'd like to thank you all for listening. And then, of course, if you've got any questions for me, you can reach out to me at NoBreaking on Instagram, at NoBreaking at Facebook, and at NoBreaking.com online. And we'd like to thank you again for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast. Subscribe someone else to the podcast. Leave a very positive comment. We know you can only give five stars. We always ask for more than five because it means a worst case scenario give us five. And if you've got any questions or any when regards to future guests, please let us know via Instagram or Facebook and just tune in. And we look forward to seeing you next week with someone completely different. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.